Warning, the Thin Blue Lion podcast, Jack McAvoy, contains adult content. Jack and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. At Bear Lake, I found Pinion standing outside the ranger shack, talking to a group of cross-country skiers who were passing through. While I waited, I walked out to the lake, and I saw a few spots where people had cleared the snowway down to the ice. I tentatively walked out on the frozen lake and looked down into one of those blue-black portals and imagined the depths below. I felt a slight tremor at my center. Twenty years earlier, my sister had slipped through the ice and died at this lake. Now my brother had died in his car, not 50 yards away. Looking down at the black ice, I remember hearing somewhere that some of the lake fish got frozen in the winter. I wondered if that was true and thought, it's too bad people weren't the same way. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line Podcast, Family Edition. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. And joining me today is my lovely wife, Cheryl. I'm Cheryl Parker. I'm the wife of Philip Parker for 28 years, and uh, the mother of my two beautiful children, Philip and Sydney Parker. My son, Philip. I'm Philip Parker, the oldest of the Parker children. I have 30 plus years of being a Parker child and being a, a, poli- a child of a police officer. And my daughter, Sydney. Hi, my name is Sydney Parker, and I'm new to podcasting um, and policing. So um, it's a it's a Harry Bosch and a, well, not Harry Bosch, but Michael Connolly. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Also, follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up for our fans. Oh, and don't forget, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find a more detailed experience concerning Jack McAvoy and Michael Connolly. Now all that bullshit is out the way, it's time to get to work and probe into chapters 9 through 12 of The Poet. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explore how there's only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth. Not going there at all and not starting. Shape chapters 5 through 8 of The Poet. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 9 through 12. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's our intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with extreme caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Jack McElroy. It's time to open up the murder book 
and turn the pages to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in these chapters. Before authorizing a trip to Chicago, Jack's editor requested more evidence that Sean was murdered. Jack responds back to Beer Lake and interviews Officer Pina. Upon questioning, Jack learns that Pina never looked in the rear of Sean's car for any other occupants. Jack further questions Riley concerning the type of glove that Sean owned. After compiling these clues, Jack relays them to Detective Wexler. Wexler is unconvinced, but Jack requests that they look at Sean's car, where Jack states he can prove that Shaw was not alone in the car before he died. Wexler is finally convinced that Sean was murdered after Jack pointed out that the rear security lock was unlocked, which went against procedures that Wexler and Sean always kept it locked. Jack further pointed out that the car heater was on low. Jack pointed out to Wexler that Sean was not in the habit of talking to himself, which indicates that the fogging of the windows was caused by Sean talking to someone else. Back at Santa Monica, Gladden, a.k.a. Brisbane, has a bail hearing in which his lawyer is able to convince the judge to set a bond amount Gladden is able to pay. Jack arrives to Chicago and visits the crime scene concerning the murder of Smathers. Shortly thereafter, Jack makes an impromptu visit to Detective Lawrence Washington. Detective Washington was the partner of Detective John Brooks, who appeared to have committed suicide in the same manner as Sean. During their meeting, Jack was able to confirm Detective Washington's assumption that Detective Brooks did not commit suicide. Detective Washington informed Jack that by utilizing the information he provided, the homicide investigation concerning Brooks would be reopened. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for this episode is, belief is not a matter of choice, but of conviction. So, as we start the third episode of the Thin Blue Line, Jack McAvoy, uh, the poet. We, uh, I want to start off by asking so far with chapter, so just going around the table really quickly, sit, start with you, Sydney. What do you think, what's your impressions of the poet so far? Is it engaging? Is it bringing you along? How do you, because you, you, how, you, how, how many Michael Conley books have you read? Is this your first one? Mm-hmm. This is my first Michael Conley book. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he is slowly starting to set up some big reveals that are going to happen later. But I do appreciate um, as well all the storytelling that is going on with the different characters. Like we have, we have got a, a good amount of like little character reveals exactly. about about traits that certain people have mm-hmm. that definitely add to the immense story. I think I'm just excited for the bigger reveals we're going to get. So what about you, Mom? As we get in, before we get into chapters 9 through 12, so far, what do you think of the poet and, and Michael Connolly and how he's developing the story? I, well, you know, I love Michael Connolly's books. Um, I have the pleasure of reading most of the Harry Bosch series. Yeah. Uh, and this is really in bringing me back to that history of reading those yes. and, and the desire to want to go back. I want to reread them all with Sydney. Yep, yep. Um, and I, I've just enjoyed it, but I understand how, just from the other books, how he builds a story. Yes, so it's, um, it's, it's, it's fine for me. I think I'm, I'm soaking in, like Sydney said, all the different nuances and yes. the characters and who's being introduced. And I'm very detail oriented, as you all know. So mm-hmm. I'm always uh, kind of putting in the back of my mind, okay, let me remember this person right. and that person because I think they're going to come up again. But no, I, it's a great story so far. I know it's going to be mind blowing. Yes. Um, even though I know what happens, it's still going to be mind blowing. Right. Um, and I'm just excited, like you. And again, lastly, Phil, what about you so far? You know, just before we get into this episode, uh, what do you feel so far about Michael Connelly and the writing? And is it well, actually, a little bit differently. Are you intrigued? Because this is your first time you read Michael Connelly, right? So this is my first time reading Michael Connelly. I am intrigued, um, but um, I'm a little bit more intrigued um, from. Okay, so so far. I know who a villain is, yes. and I know who a the the hero, quote unquote, so far is. Okay, I'm more intrigued of the villain, oh. the known villain, yeah, than I am of the quote unquote hero. So, Jack, I'm more in I'm more intrigued about Gladden, yes. than I am about Jack. Right, I feel like. Um, I feel like the Jack's story, although so far to me, I've heard it before. Okay. Whereas, rarely do you get to see through the eyes of a sociopath. Right. Okay. Um, and and, yeah. and that intrigues me. That yeah. that intrigues me to to not only. Uh, know their backstory but to figure out where it's going right um so that's that's what i'm intrigued like i said i i've i've read stories similar to jack i've seen movies yeah similar to jack's but like i said to see to not only know where we have so far with gladden but to see where it's going to go I'm very intrigued well it actually piggybacks on and we can keep going forward what we said last uh last podcast where what's great about Michael Connelly he's not, he's not afraid to go there mm-hmm. and the way he was so integral and intricate excuse me and giving us glad view world view yes was very unsettling yes. but I think to make the poet so effective you had to go there you know it's easy to go there in the good guys vision no third person view but it's very difficult and I thought it was very brave 
of him to go there through the bad guy's point of view. Yes. So that kind of ducktails us into the third episode of the uh, Thin Blue Line, um, the poet, Jack McAvoy. And it leads us to where now some reveals starting to happen. And one of the reveals is Jack is starting to put together something that happened. And again, just to segue into this episode, how we ended last episode was Jack feeling some guilt mm-hmm. behind not believing or believing his brother had committed suicide. And now it's his mission to go out and find the person who did it. And to do that, he had to do some difficult things. First was to call rally. And so, Mom, how did you interpret or did you did you have any insight on the call he had to Riley? He is in Jack had to Riley and answer certain questions. Because the reason I ask you this question, because in episode one of this podcast, you brought up something that Jack immediately did in the first in, in chapter nine. Oh, I don't even remember. So I just to give you a refresher memory mm-hmm. in episode one. You were really like, who wore the gloves? Oh. <laughs> who wore gloves? <laughs> who wore gloves? I mean, that was what you said in episode one. And I thought it was interesting. That's why I'm going to go to you first because in the beginning of chapter nine, first thing Jack does is he calls Riley and asks Riley a certain amount of questions. And one of them was, did the police give you back his gloves? And then what type of gloves did he have? Mm-hmm. And that's why, I, again, so I'm I great. remember now. Do you remember now? So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It gotta give you your investigative. I'll give you investigative thumbs up because you were like, <laughs> "Wait a minute!" Now, it's, and honestly, even though you read the book, I don't think that you put that out there in the atmosphere as, "Oh, I knew what would happen." Let me see, like I'm being smart, like that. I think you put it out there because that you didn't like that. You said, "Who wears gloves to commit a suicide?" You know, you you really had a problem with that. Yes. So I thought that was kudos to you. Yeah, so thank you. I um I I I did this whole four chapters to me, well the three of the chapters were really about um Jack's reveals and then one was about Gladden, mm-hmm. I think this time around. Yeah. And um but in when he first called Riley, I I I was I had already in my head made up in my mind that that his brother didn't kill himself. So right now, and I think we all did, I think right now we're all trying to figure out how is it done. So I knew that he, I knew that he didn't necessarily wear the gloves because I know he didn't kill himself, but I just didn't, I questioned back then, why didn't his police buddies realize that? Right. Um, But I felt like his conversation with Riley was probably hard and I know he had to have it, but I wish he would have gone to have it with her in person. In person, yeah. Yeah, because I felt like he was already near the police station because he went to the police station to go look at the car. So um, I just felt like he should have gone in person. Once he had that reveal to himself from understanding that that he it's something, the connection with the Edgar Allan Poe's mm-hmm. um, uh, poems, I felt like he just should have gone, just like he went to talk to her in person before. I didn't understand why he didn't do it this time. And so to keep going with what happens in the book, before I move on, did either one of Philip or Sydney, did you have any comments or did you want to make towards this conversation with Riley at first before I move on? Yeah. um, He mentions 
he well Riley mm-hmm. is feeling like is it just in a really dark place on the call mm-hmm. and it, you know you just feel really bad for her and, and Michael Connelly gets super descriptive into how she sounds and even later on how she looks right um, and I do already have some comments and questions from Bob about like when we get to future reveals with Riley but especially for this one she's like you know from the book she says then how come you hadn't been around for so long before he went and I'm sorry I shouldn't bring the things up talking about Jack not being around before Sean had supposedly killed himself right and Jack says we sort of had a fight about something and I didn't I couldn't remember what this fight had been about and I was going to ask you guys was it the fight they had around Terry's case and, and Sean not being able to show him the files and stuff well right now that's all without getting too much into it that's all Michael Conley's given us so far okay. and one of the things I don't want to spoil between you two is I don't want to give out any spoilers before it happens so right now the only fight that we know about is the fight they had when yeah. Sean tried to elicit some information excuse me Jack tried to uh, solicit some information from Sean right okay um but even just another note here is is her just on this same pathway, which I thought was super interesting the first time around, about how the sentiment that he had cheated on her or chosen Terry over her um, and had chosen to kill himself versus stay with her. Uh, she said it again here, like from the book, she had him wrapped around her finger, why not you? Um, talking in relation to to Jack now being so caught up on this Terry case yeah. in the same way that Sean was. So, right. um, it's interesting that Michael really does stay true to his character's mindsets and it doesn't like skirt around yeah. the fact that like she's in this place and he, he goes deep into it. So that's I appreciated that. Well, okay, what about you, Philip? Right now with Riley, did you have any insights at all? About- um I'm going to be completely honest. The the Riley and Jack's interaction to start the Chapter 9, it kind of bored me. Okay. Um, primarily because this will be, if I recall correctly, the second or third interaction that Michael Conley has introduced this, this pairing with. Yeah. And each time I feel like... Um, I feel like Riley's animosity is building a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I it, I, it, I, I kind of got tired, not tired, but I kind of got bored with that interaction because I, I feel like I, that same feeling she had the last interaction is the same one as, as this one. Is she? It's a little. She's a little bit less numb to the situation. Okay. Okay. Um, That's fine. Now, what I found. The most interesting is how this, this the small detail I saw was how the parents um, were still not contacted. Yeah, that's how um, that's the one. I, Jack is almost completely. I think because he knows the interaction that he's going to get right. from his parents. So he, if he was to call his mom, he would already know the interaction he was going to get. Right. So hmm. I'd rather just. Leave that out the equation altogether. Okay. 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 Um, but like I said, I, I I feel this one. This one, I, I feel like um, I, I I saw it before. I, I heard it before. I saw it before, and I was just I was reading with the mindset that you know I could keep little details about 
their interaction, but it's something that I've seen in previous chapters before. Okay. So then, as we progress through this uh, this for this episode, Mom, again, I got to come back to you because you pointed it out in, in episode one. Jack goes back as he's starting to build his uh, investigative uh, case. You know, first he puts down Pena, his hands, how long, Wex and, and Scarlelli, the car, the heater. You know, he had a couple of questions. He had to go through the lock, the gloves. Mm-hmm. So he has like a checklist. And as an investigator, criminal investigator, you have these checklists also. And you see Michael Connelly is doing a good job of showing how reporters also have a checklist of things they want to, some heart, some questions around some, they look for answers around some questions so they can write a story. And so one of the things, it goes back to, again, with something you said in episode one, was the uh, guard, or the, the ranger, the park ranger, mm-hmm. Pena again in the park ranger. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to throw back to you again, were you, did you say like, yes, he's going back to follow up on, how did you feel about Jack going to Pena? Well, he had to because he saw in the photos the same thing that I read, um, and I think we all saw it in the end, that that ranger station was, you could visually see it from the parking lot. And he he knew that the parking lot had been plowed mm-hmm. yes. and that the timing of what the ranger was saying just didn't compute. Right. So I, I just, I, what, what, um, made me happy in these chapters of what was revealed was how it transpired, how he figured out um, the timeline of what actually happened. Because uh, although we laughed at him running to the woods that last time around and he was breathing all hard and we were trying to figure it out, he he deducted that 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 couldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. So he was able to go back to Pena. He went back to Pena this round, right? Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. He was able to go back to him and really um, get his other follow-up questions answered. And that kind of opened the door for him to be prepared for what he needed to get answered when he went to look at the car. So asking, Sidney, ask you this question, reference to Pena. When Michael Connelly wrote in the first episode, we talked about it, when they interviewed Pena, one of the things that they said it had to be a suicide, mm-hmm. and the way they broke down, where Pena said, as soon as I saw the gunshot, I went, I went right there, and then I stayed with the car. If Michael, Con- if you read the first chapter or the first uh, first chapters when he talked about um, Sean's death, it was lock stock. No way, no one could come and um, do it other than him because Pena was there all the time. How did it feel to you? When um, now, if you press a little harder and ask a question a different way, it started revealing, well, maybe somebody could have did it and Pena just missed it. Yeah, no, I thought it was um, interesting because Sean has got, not Sean, Jack has gone on, on in these next four chapters to just be like, you know, this started with Pena, this whole suicide um diagnosis of the situation I think everybody just kind of rolled with it and because it's such a toxic topic people wanted to just wipe their hands of it and and just just clean it up as quickly as possible but when he dug into it I I, kind of even just say that Pena he's not even to be blamed he he did everything that he was supposed to do like he said he he was like 
I did this, I did that, I did this. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, there was a space of time that somebody could have been there. Um, and and I, I just thought it was it was interesting that there's that type of bias to the situation. Correct. And I That's wanted a good to, way. Mm-hmm. Go, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, Dad, and I had the question in later chapters because it, it, it's a reoccurring theme here, but like why, how, how does bias... I think we are seeing here how bias can enter mm-hmm. an investigation, but what precautions do you guys tr- take to try to keep it out of it? That's a great question. And that's why you follow policies and procedures as a guide. So when you get close to the edge or your biases start to kick in, then hopefully the procedures and biases will, um, those guidelines will push you back towards the center. And one of the things as a good investigator will do is you understand your biases. Okay. And you do have some, because we all do. Yeah. And as long as you check yourself and you say, okay, am I looking at this because the person's short? Or am I looking at this because I have a bias about a person being short and they could never do it? You know, so those are some of the things that you got to make sure that you don't bring your own biases in. But it's easy. It's very easy. And then you have good friends and who challenge you. And um, because what you always, what me, what I always do is look at the evidence I have, as long as I collected it in a sanitary manner and I didn't try to bring my biases in, then I look at it and say, okay, how can the defense attack it? Mm-hmm. And then open yourself up to possibilities like that, mm-hmm. then you try to shore those things up. But it's very difficult. Yeah, that's why I think like this has probably been going on for so long because because this was a suicide, nobody was really challenging it. You right. know, like no one was challenging this and they just kind of wanted to wipe it clean. But here comes Jack, like really, and you could say it's bias, which is in this case good because it's his brother, but like really chipping away at this and asking all the questions that really a good investigator a good investigation should have been asking. Well, and Phil, I'm going to piggyback on that because one of the questions that he chipped away with, mm-hmm. he, he is in Jack asked Pena, did you check all the doors? Mm-hmm. And Phil, how did you feel about that? Did you did you feel, did you get the same sense of what Sidney just said about the chipping away? Mm-hmm. About little, little, see, it's not, again, what I love about Michael Collins, nothing big. It's little. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did, did you pick on those little subtleties, Phil, about that all the that he didn't check all the doors. He just checked the driver's side door, so and it was locked. As a child of a, a detective, <laughs> I, I think I'm naturally depositioned deposi- de- to think into into break situations down in a very methodical manner. Right. Okay. And so, uh, <laughs> Jack brought up most of the questions I would have thought about right. as a teenager. Yeah. Right. And you were questioning why and they weren't thinking why, about it as why, police why, officers. Why, why, as a park ranger, you mm-hmm. know, some kind of law enforcement, didn't you have that kind of mental uh, break breakdown? Why mm-hmm. didn't you break that situation down in that kind of manner? Why, why, well, take it back. Why didn't you ask those type of questions in the, in the heat of the moment? Why right. didn't you think about doing X, Y, and Z in the heat of the moment? Because... Like I said, the same exact questions Jack asked or was thinking about is the same exact ones that came to mind initially. Well, so well, why didn't... Why, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Why didn't you um, check the back seat? Um, why didn't you check to see if the heat was on? Like, where's the fall coming from? Yeah, why, where's, the fall day? where's the fall Where's the fall coming from? Certain questions I would have started at, you know, let me look around the car. Let me go around, look around mm-hmm. the car. 
Um, just certain questions I would have asked myself in, in the moment. However, I do understand Pena's um, predicament where, you know, you have to not only assess the situation, but then you have to go back Reported now because this is 1996. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not like you know you, you everybody always has a cell phone in their on their That's pocket right now. Mm-hmm. So you have to run back to the, the ranger uh, station. To ranger station mm-hmm. Call the police. Call your supervisor. Yeah. Right. So it's a lot of moving parts. I right. get that. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. I'm just saying that in in the moment, I would have broken down a couple of different ways. Well, I I think a lot of that has to do, like you said, you have experience with just understanding how a detective works because you lived with one for so many years and I think I I think my investigative skills are also honed in because of just what I've seen daddy experience but when I think about Pena he's he's a park ranger and I I guess just understanding the role of the park ranger I think a lot of this has to do with experience yes so because he in his life he doesn't have that experience Mm -hmm. you know like the the homicide cops they they see that every day Mm -hmm. he he's trying to make sure that the bears aren't attacking people right you Mm -hmm. know so people get lost or people get lost so he's he was probably lost in that whole situation and really didn't understand what to do or what to look for. And you're absolutely right, Sydney. I I thank you, thank you for reminding me about the fact that they just, by just Pena saying, because I love that Jack actually played that out with Pena. Like, what did you say to yeah. your supervisor? Did you say that you have a suicide? Mm-hmm. He says, you know, I think I did. I think that's what he said. He and so uh, by him saying that, it meant it, that that's where, where they rolled with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think because um, the officers were so close to the situation, yeah. they didn't have the energy. They were grieving too. Yeah. Right. So they didn't have the energy to go any further. So they went with it too. But what I didn't understand, and maybe you all can remind me, is was there an independent source that came in from the Boulder Police Department to do the investigation besides his police department? No. Well, and no, it, and I did I found that to be odd. Yeah, well, no, there was it was special crimes. It was a different unit, but I guess I I just didn't understand why that unit did not because they weren't as emotional or or grieving with it. Why didn't they take the time to to ask these questions? Yeah, but I think that yeah, I, I have no experience with this, so Dad, you can tell more about this, but. In the wire, in in even just two instances of this chapter where we're interacting with two, or this set of chapters where we're interacting with two different sets of police departments, whenever a cop is killed, I feel like that that resonates across the department, not just like the partners no, and the I agree. team that they're on. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just it feels like everybody's grieving at the same time. But also, but, too, think, oh, but also too, you gotta re- you gotta remember, I'm from a big metropolitan police department, mm, true. L.A. All these, so Boulder PD. I mean, everybody. but it's small, mm-hmm. so you you only have a handful of people who have the experience one mm-hmm. to do homicides, and two, two to to be well, just just that's it. Opposed to in my in, well, uh, even in Harry Bosch world in LAPD, no way if anyone in his unit would be investigating that crime. They would bring in robbery homicide or internal fist, some other uh-huh. big unit. Mm-hmm. To come in and handle it because, just like you said, emotions get involved. In my department, the same thing. If we are us for our squad and something happens to one of us, 
we're not going to be investigated because our emotions would get in the way. Right. They would bring another unit in. Right. But P Boulder PD, and actually that gets to... But think, well, well I, know, I don't want to go too far ahead, but think about the Chicago PD. They well, did the exact same well, thing. Well, 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 yeah. well before, we, before we get there, hold mm -hmm. that thought, because mm -hmm. I, I want to go with, going with was let's, finish up, let's finish up this whole, these, some of these reveals. I'm going to use your terminology, Sydney, Jack chipping away mm -hmm. at the suicide angle and making it now be a homicide investigation. Yeah. Because then Jack goes to talk to Wex. Yes. And he did it in a certain methodical fashion. Talk to Riley, Pena. talk to Pena, and then let's go to Wax. Smart. And then Wex was upset. He's like, because he's like, I went to see Pena. And he's like, he got mad at him, mm -hmm. but he used a couple of things. He said, Think about it, Wax. My brother told me one of the one of the times uh, your surveillance got blown because you know it was foggy in the in the car and whatever happened. And he said, "Who writes?" You know, he must have been talking. And what well, I know, my brother did he really talk to anybody? He didn't talk to himself uh, out loud. I mean, if you're gonna talk to yourself, why would you talk? You know, to yourself in your head. Why would you talk aloud? I never knew that from my brother. He said, "Just do me a favor. If the heat's on." Then we not, we got we got a criminal a murder investigation. He well, said no, something else. Too. Yeah, it was about. Go ahead. Um, I'll let you reveal it. So he <laughs> said something else. He said that from the book, you know my brother, you worked with him. What was the routine with the security lock? Always keep it on, right? That way, no mistakes with prisoners, no slip ups. Like you did on the night you came for me. When I got sick, the lock was on. Remember, you had to switch it off so I could open the door to puke. It was just like such a nice relation to the first chapter, you know, That's, all yeah. these little things that we, links, we yeah. you know, mm -hmm. we we're just kind of reading along with. I see that he's it's like these little, little. I like that we're links to each other that reveal a bigger story, but was a nice reveal for Wesley to see as a culmination that. If there's these two things, if the heat is off and the security lock is off, then somebody else had to be in that car. Honestly, somebody else had to be had to be in the car, especially for the security lock thing, because how else like would somebody like get out? Well, know? before you say something, Phil, and even here, you see now you start to get Michael Conley, mm -hmm. and I was like, well, how sneaky he is, mm -hmm. because Philip brought up in episode one of, of our podcast about how how, how um, uh, Jack got sick. Mm -hmm. And again, you thought it was just this little throw-in line. Right. He had to hurry up, don't throw up, don't get sick in my car, let me hit the, the switch so you can uh, open the back door. Mm -hmm. So he threw that, and that's what Michael Collins does, like, so he puts it in for a reason. So a reason. Everything, has a, everything has a purpose. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll cut you off. No, I'll, that... Um, I thought that the interaction between Jack and Wex this time was interesting because I think Jack is starting to get into the head of Wex. Mm -hmm. So instead of before, I think he came in and prepared, mostly due to the fact that his brother, well, he found his brother had just died. Right. I think the interaction was a little bit uh, raw and uh, kind of, he didn't think about it. Whereas now, the interaction with Wex, I think, is very methodical mm -hmm. because sure. he used it, he used Wex, his interaction with Sean to kind of 
feed the way he wanted Rex to look uh, to go. So yeah, he did. Yeah. He um he 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 harked back on their their times where they were uh, partners mm-hmm. and how much he knew Sean. You mm-hmm. know, hey Sean. You know, you knew him. You know, you right. knew him. Like he's a brother, you know. Right. He just used those subtle little things to kind of get in Wex's head, not only to get what he wanted, but to reiterate the fact that, you know, I think you know, like I do, something's not right. Yes. And, well, and he's playing on the fact that you should know right. because you were with him more than anybody else. Well, even Wex said that. He said, hell, I was with him all the time. He's like a brother to me. Right. And he, even after it was revealed that. Jack's um, suppositions were correct. Wex says, God damn it, I missed it. But I like how Sean, I mean, how Jack let Wex off. He said, We all missed it. Yeah. We all missed it. Mm -hmm. There's this one lie where it said that after the door swung open, I stepped out and looked at Wex, or I just couldn't imagine. Like, can you guys imagine that type of look that they shared where it's like, you know, this is all true. You know, like, this yeah. is not a suicide. Everything just is changing. One little note, though, that I thought was just a little just a little horrific, a little traumatic. There was a couple of just little lines in here with different chapters that was like this. But when Jack actually got into the car for the first time of where his... where Because first, he's only seen pictures. Right. Mm-hmm. But to begin the car, it's like his, he can smell his brother's blood. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really dark. Very, very traumatic, very dark. But it's reality. And he went there. I mean, well, you have to, you know, that's why every every criminal investigator, you, you can't investigate a case from your desk. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the mm-hmm. cool lines that Michael Connelly always writes, which is true, get off your ass or not, get off your ass and knock on some doors. Mm-hmm. Well, that's in any investigator. Again, it's just I wear a badge and Jack has a pen. But at this, at this time, He's an investigator, right. and so you can't you can't write a story by sitting at your desk. Right. You got to go out there, get your hands dirty, and see it for yourself. And for like Mom said to do, you had to do it, mm-hmm. and he has to get in that car, mm-hmm. even though I wouldn't want to. Right. But to write the story completely, he had to immerse himself in his last his brother's last place on earth. Right. And I thought again, it's courageous. Mm-hmm. And you know, so then you know, what did you think about? I'm throwing to you, Philip, that. Jack held back the whole Chicago piece from Wax. I, you know, I saw that, and it's not registering with me yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm still um, under the mindset that he, that Jack is is doing this almost at the seat of his pants. That's not it. I, I'm starting to see his methodical ways a little bit, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I I didn't necessarily understand, and I still don't. Maybe that's going to be revealed eventually. I don't understand the, uh, the the magnitude of him withholding that information from Wex because mm-hmm. he. We we found out we find out later that oh actually no. We found out before he actually told uh, Riley, Riley everything. of everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I, I I didn't understand. I don't understand the why he will hold that from Wex, but give it to two other people within these these next four chapters. Well, he actually says it in the book right here. He says, "Look, Riley, I said trying to keep calm, 
whoever's doing this had already gotten away with it until I came along. I just want to get to the cops in Chicago before Wex do just one day. Mm. So that's why. Okay. You know, well, he's feel they wouldn't even have they wouldn't even have the story until I came along. So well, I want to get as much information as I can before I get big footed. Yeah, get big footed out. Um, I, I looked at it as him wanting to get there first because he knows if he doesn't get there first, he will not get the information. So I, I just felt like he was trying to, because he's trying to get to the FBI first. Right. You know, so I just think he was trying to do all of the first because at this point he doesn't trust. He's telling them and updating them, but I don't, yeah. I don't think he trusts that they're going to investigate it the way he wanted to investigate it. Yes, and the, we're, we're getting into some insights that I pulled more so when he was in Chicago than now, but mm-hmm. one is the fact that he does say even later in Chicago, like now he was worried about even that detective going a little bit ahead of him because I think he's worried about getting pushed out of this yes. case mm-hmm. uh, because he's technically still a reporter and not a police officer. Mm-hmm. But also, oh, no, not technically. That's it. That's he, it. He's he not is. a reporter. But he is a reporter. So, but one thing that I do appreciate about Jack is that I, he's he has the hat of the press, but. To me, I don't feel like he's preying on his press, um, what do you call it? His credentials? His press credentials. Mm-hmm. I think he's relating to people based on the, his interactions with them. So, example, um, instead of coming to uh, Wex as a reporter or a press member, he's banking off, hey, you were my brother's partner, right. I'm his brother. Right. You know, that kind of interaction. Same thing with Riley. You were his wow. wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you're my sister-in-law. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not going to people as the pre- flash in the bag or right, the, right. the or press, press bags. Mm-hmm. He's not doing that. He's re- coming to them on a strictly non-professional level to get information and to relate to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Bob, before we move on from Riley, I did have a question from you. And... I, I just wanted to know, like, you know, Riley was in such a dark place. Um, and then he gives he gives her this information. She's she's I, I really couldn't read her emotions when she when she gave it to her, because even he said it, it was it wasn't like a good news sort of situation. But I just wanted to know from you not to put yourself in a dark head, but like what would have been more of a relief to know that dad didn't kill himself? Well, I would already know that dad didn't kill himself. So I, um, if someone was going to tell me that dad would commit a suicide, I would say you're wrong, and I'm going to need you all to take it a step further. But, but she said, okay, but... That's interesting, though. Yeah. I love that. But remember that we all, the first four chapters, we all got sucked in to the fact that Sean had committed suicide because no, and I get that, but way. she's asking me as a wife of okay. a police officer. Okay, and well, that's fair. Yeah, I I would I would have already I wouldn't be in Riley's mindset right now. Well, it's interesting because <laughs> I think that there might be a common trait here between you mm-hmm. and Detective Washington up in Chicago mm-hmm. and his own feelings. About yes, that's actually true. Yes, so we're gonna so we're gonna talk about that. We're talking about that, but mm-hmm. as we before we get there, so. Chapter nine ends uh, with with a story that Jack tells Riley uh, that I thought summed up Jack's drive right now. That's okay. pushing him right. um, to continue this investigation forward. And I thought it was such a great character moment. 
So from the book, Jack is talking to Riley about a a moment between him and Sean, really a promise between him and Sean that they had made. He says, we made this deal when we said goodbye. It was pretty corny. The deal was that when I got rich, I would buy him a Porsche with ski racks like Redford had in Downhill Racer. That's it. That's all he wanted. He'd get to choose the model, but I'd have to pay. And I told him it was a bad deal for me because he had nothing to trade. And then he said he did. He said that if anything ever happened to me, you know, like I got killed or hurt or robbed or anything, he'd find out who did it. He'd make sure nobody got away with it. And, you know, even back then, I believed it. I believed he could do it. And something about it was a comfort. And I just thought, like, that was just so poignant because now he's going to fulfill this promise or hopefully he's going to fulfill this promise to his brother maybe not the way of buying him a Porsche or anything but doing what his brother would have done for him yes uh, and and finding his killer thank you for reminding us of that Sydney because that was beautiful I do remember when he said that and it kind of gave solace to Riley because although she was still angry um but because she was like, but she wasn't angry, but I think she was confused because she says, but that was his promise, not yours. Mm. But I think he I think in the end, she understood that he had to do this for his brother because he had to at least give him that that gift that we're going to find out who did this, because I know you didn't kill yourself. We're going to go again. It's going to be unfair to Philip because but I'm going to say his boy, <laughs> his boy glad and. You know, uh, Michael County then, again, I love the, the scene changes, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's so unexpected because right then I'm thinking, okay, we're going to then gonna go into the next move because I thought Michael County kind of foreshadowed a little bit that Jack was going to go to Chicago. Right? Mm -hmm. But then we get Gladden in, in the third person through Gladden's eye. And so your boy Gladden is getting in front of the court. <laughs> Phil? So, uh, I mean... The chapter 10 gave me mixed emotions. Of okay. course, I, I'm, I don't want to say, you know, I'm a Gladden fan. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued about yes. Gladden's character. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, but I've had mixed emotions about chapter 10 because in chapter 10, I got a sense of, well, you know what? I take it back. Last time we saw Gladden, we got a sense of his vulnerability, mm. that he wasn't immortal. Yes. Uh, that he had fears. Yes. Uh, that he had negative emotions. Yes. And that kind of spilled over into this chapter. Okay. Because when he was in the when he was in the courtroom, it he wasn't in control. Definitely. Oh no. The judge was in control. Right. You had the prosecutor who was in control, and then you had who his lawyer that right. was in control. Gladden was in a in a standpoint where he was completely at that point helpless. Right. He was at the mercy of everybody mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. him and he had no control. Mm -hmm. And to me, I, I mean, I, I love to see the contrast of character, but it, it, it kind of put a dim light to me with Gladden because I was, the, the hype off the bat was so high where, you know, he was, Cunning. Mm -hmm. He was uh, smart. Right. Uh, he had intellect. Mm -hmm. He had a little bit of wittiness to him. Yes. And to see him in this vulnerable standpoint, it kind of put a little dim to me. But I understand it. You know, that's the process 
that you have to go that he had to go through at that point in time. But it just put a little bit of a dim kind of feel for it in, 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 in on him for me in this in this particular chapter. So Cindy, how did you feel about how Gladden and his attorney manipulated the law mm-hmm. and the, the 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 vulnerability of the law and you to, to achieve Gladden getting out? Well, what I wanted to say that I did pick up on that insight. So that's a good one for brother about his loss of control because that he did talk a lot about that about what every single person was doing, and I just thought it was because he was a methodical person. But no, I think he was a little upset about the fact that all this was being done around him. Right. Um, not gonna lie, that what you were just saying, Dad, kind of went over my head that they had manipulated the law. Um, and but I did. I mean, I, I just had a lot of questions. Like, one of the questions that I had was just even from the beginning where he says, oh, they must not know my true identity because there's no TV cameras or anything there. And I didn't know if that was just a stroke of his own ego or if, you know, if his identity would be something that would bring... National headlines. Yeah. I was going to say, I took that to be that... Um, we're going, that's like um, foreshadowing yes. because I think uh, he is a criminal who is going to be revealed as a bigger serial killer than what we, we've seen so far. Mm. And, you know, like the what they talked about in the first few chapters about the network, yeah. you know, like there's going to be this whole network of criminals who who um, who it's going to come out. And because he hasn't been revealed you know, he's like, that's, I think he was being sarcastic. They okay. must not know who, who I, I really am. am because they would have the cameras here. So mom, what did you feel about the lawyer or did you have any insight about Gladden's lawyer being able to, um, just like I said, manipulate the system to get the bell reduced for Gladden? Um, I felt like he was a savvy lawyer. I mean, he, uh, he, he but the prosecutor was pretty savvy too. Right. I I felt like that she was savvy, but I I I don't know. They but the thing about Gladden is that they planned all that. That that's why I don't think Gladden felt like he was out of control. I don't know. I don't remember him saying that he was out of control in the things because he controlled all that from the cell when they broke down. From my opinion, what was going to happen. Because they said in the, I thought he said in the cell that he could go fifty thousand, mm-hmm. and so he, although he, I'm sure he would have wanted it to be twenty five. I felt like in his mind he did have the control of making sure that he guided his lawyer of what he had to have. But you also have to remember, mm-hmm. Mom, that he he was also at the mercy of when he can get to court mm-hmm. and when the uh, when the prints were coming back. So he really wasn't in control because. He was scared that the prince were going to come back to show that he wasn't. It wasn't the uh, the person or the ID that he gave the police officers. Right. And then also, he didn't know what the intentions were of the people that was around him in the jail cell. He was looking across for somebody that was looking back at him, and then he was. It was someone on the ground that he didn't know was a police officer or not. That's what right. I meant right, by right, 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 right. He wasn't in control. Not. What he set up with the uh, his attorney, but the the particular uh, situations that were going on around him. Yeah. When he was out on that pier, he was actually 
in total control. Mm -hmm. You know, planning out the different ways to try to escape, even to go to the quick detour to get the slice of pizza. Everything was in his control up until the point where the police officers caught back up to him. Right. But in this particular situation, I didn't grasp control because you have the 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 judge, you have the prosecutor, and you have your lawyer. You're really just there to say either guilty or not guilty. Yeah, but the the lawyer. This is what I was referring to, mm -hmm. where he said, where she talks about um, Santa Monica Municipal Judge Harold blah blah. Uh, <laughs> um, Krasner came back around the tables and stood by the slot so he could confer if needed with his client. Krasner announced himself as did the deputy district attorney. After Krasner waived a lengthy reading of the charges, he told the judge that his client pleaded not guilty. Mm -hmm. um, it was apparent that entering a plea so early in a casual in a case was unusual. Are you sure Mr. Brisbane wishes to enter a plea today? Yes, your honor. He wants to move quickly because he is absolutely 100% not guilty of these allegations. I felt like him and his lawyer were manipulating the system to ensure that they got him out of jail before those prints came back. But yeah, but, but, mm -hmm. see, but I think you and Phil are saying the same thing. Oh yeah, so, I, yeah, I was just showing where my um, okay. thought yeah, came you, from. Because mm -hmm. you're absolutely right, and that's the question I was getting towards mm -hmm. to you and Sidney and Philip about how the law is there to protect guilty too. You know? but then I, I, I have to say though that while they had planned out everything to a T, they, they were one step ahead of the prosecutors, I definitely am still a little bit leading on what brother's saying around, I think Gladden would have loved to have done all of that himself. Like the fact that he has to now rely on somebody who we even see in the chapter before he doesn't completely trust. Right, he's a snake. You know, he's, a lawyer, he's pretty right? much a snake too. I think it makes his skin crawl a little bit. Well, just like he did with the the two police officers, mm -hmm. he handled that situation mm -hmm. on his own mm -hmm. by himself mm -hmm. yes. without the lawyer. Yes, and it, it wasn't until he was actually. Uh, well, I think at that point he had been detained. It wasn't to the point that he was actually arrested right. on those charges mm -hmm. that I think he he felt like it was out of his grasp. Right. That he he needed additional help besides himself. Mm -hmm. Got it. But the um, the the prosecutor in this case. She kind of intrigues me a little bit because she pushed the envelope. Yes. Oh, she um, did because she knew that they really needed those prints. She did, mm -hmm. but not only did she need the prints, but they. She knew. I think she knew that if he wasn't, uh, if the judge was not made aware of the true of the true intentions of him getting arrested, then he would have set a later or a lesser Less, bail lesser and yeah. a lesser bond, and then Gladden would have been able to uh, flee. Yeah. Um, so for her to mention some of the other details that why, you know, they had um, brought him in for question, his line of questioning mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. I thought that was kind of ingenious mm -hmm. of her mm -hmm. in pushing that envelope, mm -hmm. because if you if um, earlier on in the chapter or earlier in the in the courtroom, um, it was Gladden's attorney that tried to bring up details of why right, right, this right. was a little bit egregious to ask for so much right. for, for, for bail. Said, right. You don't, don't, this is not where you plead your case. This is a preliminary, you know, this is 
this is just a hearing to yeah. say guilty or not guilty. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was actually the prosecutor that was the one that tried to push the envelope to give deets of the of the case to try to get that to get the bail kind of uh, set high. Yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of that was kind of smart as well. Yeah, she, she was savvy. She was savvy mm-hmm. in that standpoint. So then we have um, what I thought was going to happen. It moves moves along. We got Jack going to city your hometown, Chicago, Chi Town. Chi Town, <laughs> Sydney City. Did you again? This is set in nineteen ninety six. This this Chicago, the, the landmarks that he talked about here. Did they reminisce to you? Do you see those? Have you? Did you envision those landmarks as he was going down the street? Yes. No. The 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 line that I highlighted here, the first paragraph was um, I had thought it was cold in Denver until I landed at Midway. <laughs> and when I tell you, I've thought that so many times. Okay. Getting out of Midway. Well, Midway's the closest. There's two airports, Midway and O'Hare, but Midway's the closest to my apartment. And just stepping out in the cold, like it's just a bitter type of cold in Chicago. And it's different. I mean, there's nothing else like it. So I just felt like that that was super true and there was a lot of moments in this chapter where it got super detailed not gonna lie I mean I haven't even explored I've only been in Chicago for what a year and a half Mm -hmm. uh, or two years but well coming up on two years this year but um they I haven't been to certain northern parts of Chicago that he was talking about near Lincoln Park but it was so detailed that I had to ask myself, did Michael Connelly just literally fly up to Chicago <laughs> and like Probably literally did. walk all the things that Jack had done from the zoo to the everything? It was just it was like I believe everything he's saying. I have to admit I have not followed up on Michael Connelly's backstory, but I honestly believe yes. that Jack is Michael Connelly. And yeah. you know you know, even in this chapter right here, he talked about he is and Jack talked about when he was a cover reporter yeah, and all those little nuances. Yeah, wanted to work for the time. Right, work for the time. Say, yeah, come back when you got some the more stories. The tribute, my bad, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, thank you, tribute. Mm-hmm. Come, come back when you got some, some some better clips, young man. So, I bet, again, to answer your question, I'm pretty sure, you know, just based on Michael Conley, I think he probably yes. immersed himself somehow. No, he did. And there was just, like, certain points, like, even at the end when him and Detective Washington are driving on Lake Michigan, that's such a beautiful drive. That like yes, it is. That, it really is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also just on Michigan Avenue, another build, a beautiful drive around to see just all the different architecture. Him talking about the L. I didn't even know the L was spelled like that. E L. Yeah, 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 I yeah, thought yeah, it was yeah. just L. You know, right. but mm-hmm. it 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 really did ring true. Like him going under the L. You know, or him. Um, just getting catching the catching it or or taking a taxi places just like. It was very Chicago. Like, all those things definitely do happen. And them going to the South Side. Like, yes. that is huge. That was, like, in the projects and things. It just felt like, wow, that he, he really did draw out kind of a story, a smaller story, but about this city. So, so for uh, um, the listeners to the podcast who have never been to Chicago, uh, Michael Conley's depiction of Chicago, was it spot on? I mean, I'm not a Chicago native, but from what I, from what I've seen of Chicago, yes, it was pretty spot on. Especially starting with just the cold. He mentioned the cold a bunch of different times in the chapter, where it's like, yes, it is that cold up there. You know, everybody. It's like Canada. You know, it's like everybody has their big coats on, and it's no joke. <laughs> well, and the reason I say, see that, uh, um, him being authentic that way, mm-hmm. the authenticity. Mm-hmm. If it's that authentic, then him writing about a reporter. Yeah. 
Yes. You kind of then it, you know you give credence to the way he writes about other things. Mm-hmm. So if you can believe him in this, then you can believe him in that. Right. And then so it's easy to believe the world that Michael Connelly writes, it even is. though it's fiction, it's still based in a lot of reality. It is. And then that goes back to as we continue with this chapter, it's the whole thing that you guys asked me in episode one of our podcast about the nicknames. Which, yes. You know, Mom, what did you think about Larry Legs? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Cops can be so cruel. Yes, they can. They legs. But at least um at least he was able to take it. I just I was like, wow, for them to 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 uh to depict him that way. Well yeah. and then well Philip can recognize this because we both have, you know, very distinctive heads. The fact that Larry Ledge took it mm-hmm. showed because he see, one thing about being a cop and Philip understands this is if you show that whatever name they give you bothers you, oh, then it's going to be... It's going to stick. It's going to stick and it's going to stay and they're going to really give it to you. So mm-hmm. you might as well embrace it. Right, yes. Phil? Yes. Mm-hmm. I actually, um, bringing up the Larry Legs, I actually, I kind of, I kind of, not empathize, I kind of saw myself within this character mm. um, mainly because when I when I'm reading this, um, it took me back to being a little kid walking through the precinct halls of when my dad used to take me to work. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you going down and you seeing, um, well, my father, his office was at the end of a long hallway. So right. you got the, when you first come in the, the precinct, you got the, you know, the guy to buzz you in. So you got those cops that are sitting there. Then you have the interrogation rooms to your left. And you keep going down. And you have all these different compartments. So when I'm reading this and I see... And you're reading how Jack is walking through the precinct. And what he has to do to even get mm-hmm. to Washington. Right. It just kind of brought me back. Because right. that means that not only has Jack been in a precinct before as a press member, but Michael Connelly has seen the inside of a precinct. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to have those particular details, when Washington needed a, a minute from uh, for one of the rooms so him and Jack can talk privately, there were two cops sitting there eating lunch. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember... Yes. Uh, Dad had a... They had a room like that where they used to congregate mm-hmm. in, in a particular room. Mm-hmm. It was like right next to yes, yes. your uh, to your office. And so it just, it just brought me back. So that actually kept me reading more because um, I, can, I can see Washington and just him being a black guy mm-hmm. in, a, in, in the police department. You know, it just, it just it resonated with me. It put a smile on my face because I can see it. So... One of the things I've always said that I love about Michael Conley is that he's not afraid to go there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he didn't wasn't afraid to go there, that Jack assumed that Detective John Brooks was white. And come to find out that, uh, that, that Detective Brooks was black, and he said, I wonder, me and Jack said, I wonder why I thought that. I got to re-examine myself. Mm-hmm. What did you, did, did you, do you feel the same way? Is that... Did you think that that's kind of brave of Michael Conley? Again, we're talking 1996. Yes. No, I, um, there was a couple of moments in this chapter that intrigued me, including that one, because I think, I can speak for all of us, I I definitely thought that the guy was white too, um, John Brooks, because usually when you're reading news clippings or any retelling of a story, 
if somebody is non-white, then that their race is mentioned. And so True. the fact that like it wasn't mentioned in any of the news stories that um, Jack had written, I mean, sorry, had read, it, it it is pretty surprising to me that it was never mentioned that he was a black cop and maybe this was, I mean, there's so many stories out here like, oh, maybe this is retribution of some sort or, mm-hmm. or something, you know, like there, there's always this, tilted story that that comes with race but it, it's it wasn't said that way uh but there was that mentioned but also that led into the reasonings why you know his partner did believe that he didn't kill himself and right well i, I kind of want to talk about that go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. so yeah, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I didn't know what was happening when he was just kind of driving and driving and driving. But that drive is actually the same. Like, you know, you're you're passing all of the bright lights, the beautiful city that you keep going and going. And it's like, oh, you, you get to the suburbs, you get to, you know, some, some schools and things like that that you keep going and going. And then you get to the projects, you yes. know. And it's it, it was just interesting. Jack even said to himself as... Um, Detective Washington was talking he was like this is out of my realm this is out of my scope and I actually respected that because there are just some things that you won't understand as a white person and and you're privileged but I'm glad that he let David Washington give him the space to, to reveal to him why like his own reasons and racial reasons for believing that he didn't kill himself. He had already lived through a certain type of hell so why would he kill himself over this like he he's not that he's stronger than that, but it's like they're the the stakes were a little higher for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, I want to go back a little bit go because ahead, I ahead. thought that um, I thought it was kind of clever of how Michael Connolly played this one part because um, if you recall, if you go to the end, excuse me, if you go to the end of chapter eleven, you'll see how. Washington actually leaves Jack hanging. Mm. He gives him his card and he's like, hey, you know, my beeper and my home number is on there. I'll give you a call. Right. He doesn't, Washington doesn't, uh, initially he doesn't call Jack right away. Right, right, right. He leaves him hanging for a couple of hours and then Jack is like, you know, he's calling up, you know, hey, you know, you guys, where's Washington? Have you seen Washington? Is Washington been back in? And he leaves him hanging. Okay. And, I think that was a little bit of a, a trust thing yeah. because Jack came to Washington with this information and he has to trust that Washington is going to be the one or is the one that's going to try to put Jack on the right path. There you go. Okay. With, the, with, the, with the facts. And for Jack to unload on Washington everything he knows and then it's like, okay, Jack, uh, Washington took everything in. He's like, okay. Let me check up on this. Yes. And Jack has to trust that he's not going to try to leapfrog him. Right. Right. He's not going to try to go to the FBI or try to make a case on this on his own. He's going to try to take what Jack gave him, make sense of it, and then get back to him. So I thought that was a, a good club because I would have done the same thing Jack would have done. Mm-hmm. Or actually, Jack did. I would have been calling the priest and up like, hey, Washington walks in that door, I need to talk to him. Right. Or, you know, somebody seen him put up the bass signal and let a brother know that he's in the building. Right. You know, but but Michael Conley, he let it be known that Jack unloaded and he had to wait. He had to he had to trust 
that Washington was going to come back with the right information. But Washington did go to Wexler. Well, but go ahead. But remember, Jack said to 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 Washington. I, I'm gonna call him Larry Legs. I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he, he told. He said, Larry, if you don't believe my story, call Wex. Mm-hmm. But he did. He said, you know, so go ahead. Go he on. was really mad at him because he didn't tell Lex. I mean, Wex about the um about him going to Chicago. But I, I wanted to take us back to the precinct because yes. as as Sydney knows, I'm like a big Chicago PD fan. <laughs> and <but> so, <laughs> so when you, when you moved to Chicago, you know I like watched every Chicago it's show, so Chicago right. Fire, Chicago Med. I was like, I gotta know everything about Chicago. But such a mom. But when I when I was watch when I was listening or reading, because <laughs> it makes you feel like you're listening. But when I was reading the the script description of the precinct, all I could see was the Chicago PD precinct. Wow. So I think he actually gave a true, uh, Michael Connolly actually gave a true picture of what a Chicago PD police department looks like. Hmm. Because if you watch Chicago PD, that is exactly what it is. Even up to them saying that the, the room was next to the uh, um, investigative mm-hmm. rooms. Yeah, um, yeah, yes that the where the lieutenant's desk was it was very enlightening to me that he he i I feel like you felt when he was going around the city Mm -hmm. that he had to have been in a chicago pd precinct because that that setup was distinctive to them right and that i just wanted to share that with you guys did you have any (laughs) Um, more insights in reference to the uh interaction between jack and larry legs um yeah i i it wasn't more so about their interaction. I agree with Sydney that I thought it was ingenious of Larry Legs taking him through the city the way he did. It was it was um, it was intentional, you know. Yes. And then when he he wanted to make sure that he that he knew you didn't have to come up here and tell me that my partner killed himself. I didn't already kill. knew didn't kill didn't kill himself. Yeah. I already knew that. Um, and this is why we both struggled to yes. get to this point. So I, I thought that that was very interesting. But I want to take us back to the very beginning when he first got there and he went to the zoo um, to see where the boy was yes. killed. Yes. Uh, because I thought that that um, description was just as uh, um you just as uh, detailed and traumatic as as what he did in the precinct. But one of the things that I made a note of was that um, when he said this sentence, the boy had been found in the snow covered clearing where the Italian American leagues um, bocce bocce Bocce. tournaments were Mm -hmm. held in the summer. I don't know why that line clicked to me, but it made me think that I feel and I'm and I'm thinking in the future, we're going to find out that Gladden killed this boy. Yeah, Yeah, I think Gladden (laughs) killed the the Teresa Lofton and I think he killed this young man (laughs) with this young boy. Mm -hmm. Because we're reading the same book. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't that, then it definitely most definitely came from the same network. And I think, you know, when when detect when Larry Legs and Jack <laughs> are going through they go through three theories. Go ahead, go. Um so um I I thought that everything in relation to the boy, both at the beginning of the chapter and the end of it, started to play into what Jack had been talking about in terms of the bias that is built when you're working a case. So he had been he had made this great line about how 
um, cops and and serial killers, you know, they have this opposite way of thinking. Serial killers try their best to not get attached to the case or get attached to the victim as possible so they can do what they do with them. And while cops usually do not get attached or try not to get attached, they get very, very attached to the case, even so much to the fact that so when when the secretary called to get Larry Legs, they were like, somebody's here about the kid. Like, it yeah. was such a general, yes. you know, yeah. term, term yeah. That, that everybody in the department knew about. Just like Teresa, um, that's like Lawson. Just, just like Lawson, just like Terry. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but you start to see Jack do very similar things in regards to this Mathers boy. Yes. Because he, you know, first he's like, looking at it very methodically, probably how the old Jack would, where it's like he's he's being an investigative reporter. But by the end, you know, after just hearing everything about the case, the fact that this was the anniversary of the little boy's death uh, or them finding him, he goes all the way back there Puts to the put picture, the picture, picture back. back. And yeah. it's like, yeah, Jack, you're getting as deep into this case and as, not biased, but you're connected. connected. Mm-hmm to to these cases as any police officer would they also I, I one thing i definitely um besides the obvious information from about the case uh one thing i can appreciate about michael Connolly's uh writing in this particular chapter is when he uh express when they showed us how um bobby was kicked or how he was Kidnapped and then eventually murdered. Yes. So when I read this, I have a a young son. So, you know, when I read this, you can just, you know, close your eyes and picture, you know, your son playing in the snow. And then all of a sudden, just like at the drop of a hat, he's gone. Disappeared. Disappeared. Mm -hmm. And it it kind of, and and someone, I've noticed this a couple of times reading up until this point where you just get a, a quick little shiver or, you know, uh, it's like a, a, a cold gust of wind just like hit your mm-hmm. bones a little bit. Because mm-hmm. it, 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 stuff could be that scary, but how it could relate to you in that manner, you know. Yes. So um, just reading that, you know, it, 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 it's, it's soft and it's subtle. But the when you're reading it, you know, as a father and as a father of a young a young boy, it hurts. It hurts. Yes, it, uh, it hurts. So just to imagine, um, I can I can I'm not giving the police officers an excuse, but to see something like that come across your desk and you have to deal with it, um, I can see how it 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 just puts a huge. Uh, cloud over their heads. Well, you know, it's funny you say that, Phil, because one of the things that I, again, do my cross-promoting that I talk about in the Thin Blue Line with Harry Bosch, one of the things that's lost in society now is that the empathy, the connection with the community, the passion that you have for solving a crime. Because, and I say it all the time, you we can't hold police to such a, such a standard that's unattainable without letting them be inhuman. That comes at a cost. They will make a mistake. So let's understand why they made a mistake. Because one of the things that I think made me successful as a cop is that all my supervisors, if I made a mistake, they looked at what, what was a mistake ill-intended. 
Did I make a mistake because I was out here being rogue and cause, being mayhem? Or I just made a mistake because I was young and dumb and didn't know any better? Mm-hmm. If I was young and dumb and didn't know any better, somebody would shut the door and say, come here, boy. Come here, come here, come here. Come here, come here, young boy. Sit down and just give me the ride act. But then, now go out there and do your job. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't afraid to make a mistake. These cops nowadays are afraid of making mistakes, so they are standoffish. Mm-hmm. They don't get personally involved anymore. But then they lose, to me, they lose something. It's more antiseptic. It's really, it's antiseptic where they don't have that empathy for solving a crime and bringing justice to the victim. Mm-hmm. And and to me, I think society loses, loses a lot by that. And like you just said, what guy, because all of us are somebody's son, somebody's daughter, someone's sister, someone's brother, someone's husband, someone's wife. And if you, you can only get detached for so much, yeah. you want to show, you, the, the, the victim wants someone to understand and feels though someone else out there fighting for the, the person who was uh, aggrieved or hurt. Absolutely. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Like it, I was like, I'm a little shaken right now. Mm-hmm. Just even imagining that that could be because he's coming up on the age yes. of the yes. family, yes. and like yeah. imagining that AJ would be just taken and, 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 and then found like that, you know? Because he was taken while he was playing with friends. friends. Yes. He was at school. Where he's school. He was, he, was, yeah. he was playing with his friends, mm-hmm. and then his friends said that um, he they thought he, he was playing. They, hide right, he played. Mm-hmm. He thought he was playing hide and seek, and then. Well, he was hiding from them. Mm-hmm. And then just that Most quick, he was gone. And see, once again, what Michael Connelly has done is that, you know, usually, again, another criminal uh, uh, investigative technique, is it a crime of, of opportunity? Mm-hmm. Or was it was it a crime that was thought out and planned? So Michael Connelly has now given us two crimes that I, that, let's all have a consensus here. This is not a crime of opportunity. No. This wasn't some little kid walking down the street Mm-mm. or Teresa was some some college person and somebody jumped and grabbed her. Through. This was somebody who thought planned, about it, yeah. planned it, and then executed it. Yes. Well, no? on the Teresa note, I still don't know because even he says here, what are the similarities between the two? Mm. Um, she was a white female adult and he was a black male child. And going back to episode one of us all getting together, you know, brother had talked about how usually serial killers have an MO in certain the type of people that they kill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this, like, you know, these two people are out of the MO. The only thing that connects them, which is still pretty big, is the fact that they were both at centers. Most likely they were at these community centers when they were taken. Okay. But I feel like that this the um, description of when he was um, in the pizza place mm-hmm. and he talked about what he wanted to do to the He's woman, the lady. ticket holder. Oh, um, Gladden. Oh, okay. When Gladden talked about what he wanted to do to the ticket holder, mm-hmm. I feel like Teresa was the, not, not that she was the ticket holder, but I oh. think there was a situation like that with Teresa Lofton. But she knew, like she had she, like, she had seen eye, something yeah. that that he did, yeah. and so therefore, or that someone in the network did. So therefore, they felt like that since she saw that, she had to be taken out. Mm. So that's why Fair. I feel like he took he um, Teresa. But I like your thought about the network because I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily have to be Gladden, mm-hmm. yeah. but it could be somebody in that network. Yeah. That actually kills both both of them. Well, can we just move on to the theory? Well, wait, before then, so that's the point I was making mm-hmm. when you said it earlier at the beginning of this particular podcast, where is that there is 
Michael Conley doesn't write anything just to be putting it out there. Yes. And I don't, and he, it, right now, I'm looking at it as, so the person who committed the crime of these murders, because to me, you got a, a, a Teresa and Bobby that it was a methodical, planned out uh, a murderer. And so then we got to start thinking about some of the similarities. But before we go to, because I know what you want to get to, Sydney. I, again, it's some of the little nuances that I like about what Michael Connelly's writing is that Larry Legs took Jack to a cop bar. Mm. And remember, mm. I didn't know it was that, that cop bar. There was a cop bar. Mm. And again, Chicago PD, Boulder PD, all cops have a cop bar where they feel safe, where they, 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 they can let the hair down, you know, drink I and all that kind of that. stuff. So at the cop bar, when they're talking, one of the things that I love that, good mom, you were right. Because one of the things that Jack has suggested to Pena is to, to hypnotize. Mm-hmm. And again, back, this is Michael Conley's foray into, there was a big LA thing about hypnotizing oh. back then. But you know, once you hypnotize, see the thing is, we never did for our PD, because LA was always on the cutting edge of stuff. Um, but we never did it for our PD because they stopped doing it. Because once you hypnotize it, then it could be argued in court that that person's testimony has been tainted. Mm. Mm. And that you can't use it for a, a, a court testimony portion. But right now, Pena was hypnotized. And then he did remember that Sean only had one glove on. Right. And it just so happened to be the glove with the GSW. Mm-hmm. Gunshot, uh, gunshot residue. GSR, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So that, that was a big reveal. Again, mom, it goes back to what you yeah. said earlier. Yeah. What's up with that glove? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it also brought me back to what when they did the description of what happened to Detective Brooks, where um, where it, it was something about the two gunshots. Yes. Remember well, we that? Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about it. Go, yeah, go for it. I'm going to lead them to that. The two gunshots... Um, I they were really that I think that's when they were doing the theories maybe and they were really trying to figure out why why would he have two gunshots if he was killing himself so to me and then Larry Legg says because he needed to wipe the gun and put the get the G what is it gunshot residue residue on his hands Mm -hmm. so that's why there were two shots yeah, no, there there were there were three theories thrown out here. Go. What were the one, three theories? Yes, go ahead. We're talking about one guy, somebody out there killing people, then doubling back and taking out the lead cop work in the case. Two, the first killings are unrelated and our doer just comes into town, waits for a case he likes or sees on the TV, and goes after the cop who heads up the investigation. Or three, we've got somebody who wants to kill cops. Uh, so he uses the first killing to draw out his prey, the cop. And so I really don't know where I follow this. I don't think that there's, I don't, I don't know. One just seems like that's just a whole lot of nothing. I don't know about one, but two and three, I have a hard time with it. I'm fighting between the two because, um, because my first original, when we had gone into the first chapters of the book, was that there was somebody out here who was just kind of waiting for a case where a cop would be, you know, led to it uh, and then killing them. But maybe it is three where, you know, it's somebody, there's two people going with like going and one person's killing this and the other person's killing the cop. Well, I still haven't put gladden up on my even though i should 
I still haven't put Gladden up on my, my suspect board for all these various killings just yet. I haven't pulled that trigger just yet. Mm-hmm. But um, as I stated in our first episode, I do think that certain killers have M.O.s. Certain killers have... Um, they have a certain regimen that they go through. And some of these are starting to link together. So um, I, 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 I like this pairing of Jack and Washington. I think they play off of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Jack is that, uh, that brash kind of guy in the police department that nobody messes with. The bulldog in the in the police department, nobody in that, that particular precinct nobody messes with. You talk Larry? Larry. Okay. Um yeah, Washington. His yeah. name is Washington. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but uh I think him and Jack, they're cunning. But again, like I mentioned earlier in this episode, I see how Jack was able to um get relate to Washington. Yes. He didn't come to him at well he used his press credentials to validate Go back to what you were saying, right? Um, yes. mm-hmm. but he didn't use his press credentials to interrogate Washington. Yes. Right. He to came get in to, there. He knew he, he came, was smart to do that. He came to Washington mm-hmm. as Sean's brother. Yep. Again, he said that. Yep. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to Sean. He didn't come to Washington as a press but then he also played off on Washington whereas hey I know, you know, you you knew your partner better than anybody else. Yes. So he played off of that. You know, I knew my brother mm-hmm. better than anybody else. So he played off of that with Washington. So that pairing, I kind of, I kind of like how that, how how they paired. I kind of wish it would continue, you know, in in the foreseeable future. If it does, I, um, I I I would like to see it continue because I think even between Wex and Jack. You know they were they are supposed to be closer, but I just have a feeling that Washington was able to bring more out of Jack than Wex does to me. So that brings us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for epi- uh, for chapters 9 through 12 of The Poet is, I'm sorry. You're going to take mine. Larry Legs? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Okay, well, I'll, I'll let you go first why you like Larry. And that's all I want to steal your thunder. Why'd you, why'd you pick Larry Legs? Well, I mean, I'm going to be just really quite frank here. I'm glad we have a black character, uh, finally, that we can get behind. We're a black family. And um, 
And that's important to me to have that type of representation in this type of story. And it's very authentic. It's not a token character. I'm very glad that his his reason for being in the story and developing the story further has everything to do with such a big part of his identity. So much to the fact that like it was very interesting to me when even they were describing, oh, he's all the way in the back. He's the black one. It's right, like, right, Dad. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Why do you have to say right. it like that? Well, again, yeah. that's Michael Collins. He's not afraid to do that. Yes, mm-hmm. he's not, but it's like, that's that's real, you mm-hmm. know? So I just really, I liked how, what what layers to the story he, he brought, um, even just going to the South Side and telling such a such an honest story there the stark difference between black and white in chicago because that's still kind of true to this day i just thought that his his character still to this day is very real Mm -hmm. um to a black experience well well the latter part of what you said that's one of the reasons i like larry Lay. one first just the name (laughs) you know just the name larry legs so you know again to have this big muscular torso and his little itty bitty short legs (laughs) And for him to rise up to homicide, mm-hmm. that means this dude worked his ass off yeah. to get there. So, see, I know, I mean, I'm just thinking about the character and all it took to become the famed Larry Legs. Right. Then also, again, if you said it, I'm not sure you or Philip said it during this podcast, but he could say, I know it's my friend, we grew up through the ghetto. Boom, that's why I know he didn't kill himself. But to then take Jack on that journey, right. to take him from the the, the, the the Miracle Mile to then to the to the project area, to actually, again, what you said earlier, Sydney, to get in the car, to immerse yourself in the whole environment, and say, this is why my partner didn't kill himself. Right. Because look at what he had to go through. Mm-hmm. He was, he, again, he made it to homicide too. Yes, they were together. They made it to homicide together. That's an and remember, he said that they uh, uh, that, that they grew up together, they did. and then they both had became a cops, and then they both became detectives, and then they both wanted to be assigned to uh, uh, be assigned together, and they just happened to be on the south side. Mm-hmm. One of the things I should have brought up is he said how life works because just. 10 minutes, uh, I'm not sure how, what the time was, oh, it would have been yeah. someone else who picked up the, the Bob, the, 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 the case. Mm-hmm. But again, I digress. My everyone counts and no one counts person for chapters 9 through 12 of The Poet is Larry Legs. Mom? Mom? Um, mine is Jack. I think, um, I, I agree with everything that you all said uh, about Larry Legs, and I'm, I'm with it. <laughs> um, but I guess when I'm just thinking about the whole journey that Jack took to get everyone to understand that his brother didn't commit suicide, mm-hmm. to me, was the theme of the, all four chapters. Well, well actually, the three chapters, because I know Gladden mm-hmm. was one of the chapters, but um, I just thought, it just watching him uh, kind of maneuver through this whole journey to getting uh, not only Wex on his side, but Larry Legs on his side. Um, and now he has the, the third step is to go to, go to Washington DC to talk to the FBI. Mm. So I just feel like it's Jack. I feel like from the start of him talking to Riley and just kind of working his system and getting everyone to understand what he thinks happened. So, mine is Jack. Mm-hmm. Mine is uh, Deputy District Attorney Tamara Finstock. Okay. All okay. right. That's um, a good one. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I like how she, okay, so we already knew in the previous chapters mm-hmm. how Gladden and his attorney 
pretty much had this thing uh, wrapped up. Mm-hmm. They knew how much it was going to come out of pocket. Uh, he had an idea of how much, how long the prints were going to be. All this kind of stuff. The, who the ju- how long the judge, uh, how much the judge was going to give him for a bail. All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, District Attorney Finstock, she had did her darnest to throw a monkey wrench in the, his attorney's plans. You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she did. She knew that um, he would be a flight risk. Mm-hmm. She knew um, that the judge knew that some of the charges were fluffed up, but she had to let the judge know that there were more impeding charges that were greater. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, mine is, mine is, uh, she, she, uh, the attorney, uh, Finstock, she definitely pushed the envelope. So I think that's, that's why she was my, my every, every person. That's a good you, one. That's a good one. Do you think that she knows his true identity? I don't because most of the stuff that she, uh, got, she got from, uh, what the two detectives mm-hmm. gave her. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just using simple, true. simple common knowledge. So let's just say if she knew Gladden from previously, she would have more in-depth yeah. stuff that she could pull from. That's fair. For yeah. example, if she knew the kind of car he drove, yeah. she could say, well, I think in, in that in that um, particular chapter, she indicated uh, in the deposition that he didn't have a residence or a car, or, or she didn't, that he didn't provide a car or a residence. Yeah. So if she had that kind of information, she could have provided it yeah. on her own. She yeah. didn't even need what the what the police officers gave mm-hmm. her. Um, but I just I, I, I like the fact that she's a bulldog and she was able to throw a monkey wrench because yeah, um, the his attorney was at, he, he had a, a a kind of a idea of what kind of bail the judge was going to set. Mm-hmm. But she that monkey wrench made him sweat a little bit. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true. So it did. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that, yeah. She she's definitely that, I, I, she brought a little 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 smile to my face. A little, a little spice bit. to yeah. it. So this concludes chapters 9 through 12 review of the poet. Thanks for joining us, and we ask you to continue to go to Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. And also, comments, comments, comments. I know we all love comments. Yes. And so please (laughs) keep the comments and the feedback going because I think that helps this podcast to get better. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find more detailed experience concerning Jack McAvoy and Michael Conley. So next up on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we will continue our deep dive into the poet. I'm Philip Parker. I'm Cheryl Parker. I'm Cindy Parker. Philip Vincent. <laughs> and, and we're 10-7 for the remainder. <laughs> Bye. Edgy.